All right, friends, if I could have you take a seat, we'll get started. I have a significant amount of questions uh, that everybody's given us, so I think it would benefit us to get started quickly and try to work through as many of these as possible. I had written some questions, uh, but I'm not even going to attempt those because we have such a, a number here that's uh, before us. All right. First question, how would you advise we begin to help a child, a male, who's recently told us that he is a woman? I realize this is a very complex situation, but, but we don't even know where to begin. That's going to be a situation that, you know, um, I'm going to not just want to speak into in a general sense, but I'm going to want to have as an elder-led uh, counseling process, uh, and I'm, I'm maybe going to bring in a, a doctor in the church or a doctor from another strong local church and, and work through this, so let that be said up front. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not a medical professional, not that we cede this as, as pastors and teachers to them, but there are some complicated issues that may, may need to be raised in the, in the context of counseling. But what we do fundamentally as a father and mother, if a child voices this desire to, to, you know, identify as the opposite sex, is we do what we do on every count. Um, we, we make clear the good design of God like we've been trying to do in these sessions. So we're teaching biblical truth. We're teaching that God has only made us to be a man or a woman. Um, we're teaching that not embracing our, our body and thus our, our bodily identity is a matter of sin. So it's not what a child may have heard in school or something like this or seen on a show, um, you, you're not free to go against your body uh, as a Christian or even just in a general sense. So in feeling those kind of things, the child may have that bubble up within them. They may not be trying to think that, but look, children, this is where you just see how insidious it is to baptize natural desires, right? because we have all kinds of natural passions and desires that are not godly, right? And we're constantly having to train. <laughs> That's really what a major part of what fatherhood and motherhood is. Don't follow your heart, right? Don't follow your heart. And, and a major part of what our discipleship is, is us repenting for following our heart, uh, for thinking, oh, you know what's going to solve this, uh, this uh, slightly growing marital disagreement? for me to just let loose and, uh, and tell her what I really think. Well, that, that doesn't solve anything. Um, I followed my heart there. So we're, in other words, we're not saying one thing to only children who, who would have this sort of disordered uh, uh, desire. All, in all of life, we say, fundamentally, this is a John Bloom book title, good devotional book, don't follow your heart. And, and, and so we're saying this in a, in a fatherly way, in a motherly way, but in the home, we're teaching our children that they, they need to repent of these desires, uh, that, that if they want to, let's say, dress in the clothes of the opposite sex, they can't do that. We're actually saying no. We're, we're not facilitating this and, and trying to sort of be in this middle position. We're saying, no, you can't do that. Um, and then we're trying to work in terms at the counseling level. That's why I talked about elders and maybe also doctors to some degree. Why are you feeling this? We may not ultimately be able to discern why, but we might have, a, have some sessions where we try to discern that. Why, do you, why does the child think they should do this? 
that sort of thing. And just briefly, but and maybe it's just an element of hope. <laughs> Have you seen, I mean, from experience, uh, or walking down that path or uh, other experiences in the past where you've seen that person repent, where you've seen that change? Yes, and not even in a Christian sense. Most children who say that they are the opposite sex or they have a different identity or these sorts of things age out of it. There are plenty of stats from the non-Christian counseling community, the psychiatric community, that show that most boys or girls who have some, it's called gender dysphoria, feeling like they're trapped in the wrong body, basically, age out of that. It, it's, a, it's a childhood thing. It's a thing that not a few kids experience, actually. Right. So, so we, that's another part of our response. That's a great, great question. We don't want to treat a child who would say this as if, you know, we're now on on Venus, and we have no, this is, they're a different kind of sinner, and there's, the gospel isn't sufficient. No, no, no. Right. Kids feel this. Right. It's not good. It's pagan. It's ungodly. It's evil. But kids feel this, right. and we can walk with them through this and, and bring them back, and, and there are all kinds of stories. Yes, uh, um, uh, one story um, of, I think, I think she lives in Texas, actually, Emily, Emily Thomes, I think her name is, she would be one who embraced a cross-gender identity and, and went into a homosexual uh, lifestyle and then has come out of it, and, and there's many others we could think of. We'll have to wait until deeper waters. Uh, if that wasn't deep enough, that's, that's pretty that, deep, That right? felt fairly deep, yeah. uh, but <laughs> glad you... you yeah, you know. that's not deep enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, this person says, you mentioned homeschooling. Would you say that that's the way it should be done? Yes. No, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Let's fight. No. Um, Deeper waters in the church? Yeah. Uh, I think homeschooling is great. Uh, I think Christian school can be great, depending on the school. Uh, I think there can be public schools where Christians have their children there. I, I will then quickly caveat myself and say, I think it's getting harder for all the reasons we've been talking about these sessions to have our kids in, in public schools trained um, trained in those settings. I don't think it's impossible, though. I mean, there are, there are school districts in Kansas City that are known for being quite conservative, lots of Christian teachers in the school, for example, and, uh, and we, have, we have children in, in my church, and they're there, and they, you know, different kids have gone through that school system and become a Christian, and they're fine. So I, I don't think there's one size fits all. I do think, though, that a lot of Christians in days ahead are probably going to look at their local school district, which is not normally, like what I just described, and go, okay, we either need to school this child at home in some form, you know, is there an online um, Doug Wilson's Academy or Logos or whatever it's called or some other online program, or is the mother actually teaching, which is great, but also challenging. It's a big commitment. Uh, or, or is there a Christian school we can partner with? I think that's probably where a good number of Christians are going to be in days ahead, right. um, practically. Another uh, maybe challenging question. Uh, your comments about critical race theory and wokeness as it relates to church discipline caused quite a stir. Can you elaborate on this? Has the pushback you received caused you to reconsider your comments? Uh, no. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I, I'd like to, yeah, I'd like to know more about what they're thinking in terms of the elaboration. There's all sorts of things to elaborate sure. on. Um, I, no, I, I don't have anything 
I, I don't have anything I regret saying or something. I, I, did, I did this uh, series. I think I mentioned it quickly, but it's on YouTube. You can find it. It's called Christianity and Wokeness. I did it a month ago, five weeks ago now, in, uh, in uh, the Minneapolis area. And so Christianity and Wokeness on YouTube, it's six, six videos. And I tried to articulate a, a much fuller um, presentation of what I said br very, very briefly in like five minutes last night. I, I gave it like, I don't know, five hours. And even that is just scratching the surface of this. Uh, I'm going to try to turn those lectures into a book, um, praying about that and, and seeking that out right now. But no, I think wokeness is honestly taking a lot of people captive in the church. I think that wokeness is not just not the gospel. I think that wokeness is anti-gospel. I think if you embrace wokeness, in other words, you, you are embracing a system and a set of principles that it's not just that they can't coexist with the scripture, with, with the gospel, it's that they will, they will co-opt the gospel. And so you will begin thinking, and you can trace this in actual people and movements, you will, you will begin thinking that, that the gospel is about you becoming one who confesses white supremacy, depending on your, your skin color, or is against white supremacy, and therefore the solution is anti-racism and dynamiting of existing society and seeing majority culture is inherently horribly wicked and all these sorts of things. And I just don't think that's the way American society is. You've heard me not hold back about different weaknesses and failings of our culture. And I, I fully acknowledge that America has racism in its past in, in really significant ways. But I don't think that this current society is what woke folks say it is. And I don't think that your average white person is who they are said to be. I don't think they're a white supremacist in general. Uh, and I, I don't think they need kind of a, almost an add-on gospel to overcome not only their sin in Adam, but their whiteness. So would you speak for a moment to church elders? Because I think, you know, you think about the call for them to protect the church. And, and I thought about, I mean, so much of what you talked about with manhood last night, to protect church, uh, to protect, to lead, uh, that so much of that ties to what the Bible says about elders within a church. Mm -hmm. And yet it seems like that elders think that way in terms of false doctrine when it comes to the prosperity gospel. And that's, that's a, a, something that everybody can stand up front and agree yes. upon. But what would you say to the elders that are, are sensing that coming into their church in some way? I mean, uh, just uh, in regards to going, don't miss this. Don't be blinded by this. I mean. Yes. Oh, I think you're exactly right, Eric. Um, and I'm going to try, I'm going to give another form of the Christianity and Wokeness talks next weekend in Abilene, as you've now heard me say. So there'll, there'll be more said there. If you want a fuller case right. with more quotations and, a, on a, again, much bigger uh, take, I'm doing that next, next weekend. But what I would say to elders is this is, this is what happens constantly. That's why we did five different ones last night. I didn't say this is the only one. Wokeness is the only threat to the church. Critical race theory is. It's definitely not. Um, there's plenty of threats out there. So what I would say is there's a lot of Christians who are shy about tackling wokeness, this term that I use to describe the whole system, both the, the theory and the activism. Um, I, I think the American racial past has a lot of people scared. 
when there are racial issues, because the church, to some degree, did get things wrong in years past, centuries past, we're almost afraid to touch racial matters today. Um, we can't have that perspective. We need to be careful and thoughtful and reasonable and open to reason. Absolutely. We need to be honest about our failings and our, our traditions failings. But then we need to stand up and confront falsehood, anti-gospel ideology that is coming into our churches. And we need to not see issues of wokeness, therefore, as matters of conscience. Wokeness is not a matter of conscience any more than the prosperity gospel is a matter of conscience, any more than expressive individual secularism is a matter of conscience, any more than postmodern epistemology is a matter of conscience. None of these things are matters of conscience, meaning you can hold basically whatever view you want so long as you retain a Christian confession. These things are anti-gospel ideologies. That's not weird. There's tons of anti-gospel ideologies. We have to not only understand them, we have to, 2 Corinthians 10, 3-6, destroy strongholds that would take us captive. This isn't just have an eye to what may be preying upon your, your members, elders. This is, go back to 2 Corinthians 10. Read it in your devotions. Work through it slowly. Elders, but the whole church. The whole church. And look at what Paul says about about systems that are trying to take the Corinthians captive. He says, I don't just know them. I don't just understand them. I don't just engage them. I destroy them. That doesn't sound very modern, does it? Destroy strongholds, Paul? That's exactly what we do when we identify something that's taking people captive. In other words, that is corrupting the biblical worldview and the very gospel itself. We cannot sit passively by we have to speak to this because our sheep, our people are in mortal jeopardy. And I see, Eric, I see very few Christian pastors and elders who get that and who are acting accordingly. And it, I won't say it terrifies me because I, I trust in an almighty God, but it concerns me gravely for the church. There's a sense that they dabble. And like we talked about last night, I think, you know, to dabble because they want something of the academic favorability because that is part of the world. And, and as you said, even earlier with the talk on womanhood about, um, you know, engaging the world and just adding a little bit of Jesus to it. And, and I think you see a lot of that in a lot of these sorts of things as, as, as the church approaches them. Uh, now, one of the reasons that we asked you to be here to, uh, for this weekend, really, was because I, I mentioned that one of the teaching distinctives at the church is that we teach a biblical manhood, biblical womanhood, and we wanted you to come as a premier person to be able to explain that uh, and, and provide a teaching series for us. And one of the questions that we got was, what can churches do to establish an ongoing focus in depth to this subject with youth groups, families, men, women groups, mm-hmm. college groups? What, what does that practically look like? It practically looks like um, a pulpit that tackles these things. That's where it all begins. Uh, you can have great ministries in the church or programs set up. That's terrific. But if the pastor is not engaging these things and leading out on these issues, not just these issues, but any issue, right? Don't expect it's going to take root in the church. If it does, it's going to have to take root against the grain of the church. So many churches have not taught on manhood and womanhood, have not taught on marriage, 
have not taught on the sexes, have not taught on biblical sexuality, and then you expect your people to not be lured away by the culture? You have to, we have to go after our people in love. We have to go after them. We have to educate them to the fullest possible extent about the. We can't just give a glancing comment in a sermon once a year and hope that 30% of the congregation will pick up the hint we're dropping. We have to go deep on these things. It starts with the pulpit. It starts with going through chapters of the Bible. And I'm, I'm not meaning wrenching your preaching calendar. I'm saying preach through Ephesians, preach through 1 Corinthians, or you know, whatever it may be. Preach through Genesis and tackle these things. And then it seeps down into Sunday school or training events or these sorts of things. So you have, you know, a 10-week Sunday school class or five Friday nights over the course of the fall or whatever it may be where you, you dig into this. Um, and then you're also always trying to marry the formal efforts that we were just talking about with the informal. And it's hard to spell out quickly how to do that, but you're trying to create a culture of discipleship, which again flows from the top down. A pastor discipling typically elders and others, in the right, understood in the right sense, and, and then those elders discipling men in the congregation, and then that creates a context where there's family discipleship happening, and then that flows into women discipling women, and you, now we've got a whole ecosystem of discipleship. Right. That's what we're after, uh, I think. And I, you know, I think sometimes you see within the church, while from the pulpit you may hear some of those things, but the picture then that the church puts in front of the congregation is much different. And I just think somebody sent me a video recently, you know, of kind of a Q&A on a really hot button issues. And I watched the pastor there with women that were on staff. That's who answered the questions. And he continually turned it over to the women to answer the questions. Oh, and it was, it was just a bizarre, you know, message that I think subtly is kind of that sent. And, and you mentioned in the grand design uh, sort of a complementarianism that's based on, well, what can we get away with? Mm-hmm. Or, or sort of that's, and, and as opposed to, again, the beautiful picture that you're putting up here. I mean, I think, yeah, what, what you're speaking to, again, is what's the message that the church is sending out first from the pulpit, but then is the whole church. It is. And if the pastor is doing the common modern playbook, which is letting the, the identity politics group in question answer the matter, right. then he should expect that his authority and leadership and teaching will be undermined. Right. Uh, when there are threats to the church, Paul and Peter do not say to elders... Uh, okay, find the the group in question, find a regenerate person and have them answer it. Right. Elders are appointed to teach, lead, and holistically shepherd the congregation. Elders need to answer challenges from secular feminism. Elders need to answer challenges from the LGBT community. Elders need to answer challenges along the lines of wokeness. There, there should not be any punting uh, of these issues to others in the congregation. The scripture does not feature elders saying to godly women, oh, you speak to this. Right. It's elders who are called to speak to the issues at play. Are there godly women in our churches who are gifted and thoughtful and discipling like we're talking about? And does their, does their voice and wisdom count in all sorts of ways? Absolutely. Right. But elders, elder. And we're seeing a generation that doesn't want to elder very much. 
almost like you have an intersectionality mindset because the woman then has more credibility to speak to this than what anybody else would have because of who they are. The intersectional mindset is not like threatening the church. I think it's, I think it's here. Right. And that is absolutely one of the ways it is here. I don't have the authority to speak to this issue because I don't have the experience that is, that is being called out here. So we need to, if, for example, if it's homosexuality, we need to find a former gay Christian to speak to the issue. Or if it's feminism, I shouldn't speak to that. A, a godly woman in the church, should, no, right. no, that is not a biblical teaching. Elders need to step up and take the heat and take what fire comes and guard the sheep and, and warn off the wolves. But yeah, that's going to be, that's a tall order. Uh, this question, God is unapologetically masculine in describing himself, and yet at times speaks of himself as helper, like a hen gathering her chicks. The claim now being God is unisex, either, or, etc. How do we think through these things and make distinctions to God's character and how our roles, man and woman, reflect his character? That's, that's a good question. Uh, God always identifies exclusively in masculine terms. There are metaphors that he will use to uh, unfold part of his character that are sometimes, in a few cases, feminine metaphors. So let that be said. But we should never confuse that distinction that I just tried to give where there is identity and then there is a metaphorical connection. God never says, I am a nursing mother. I am a nursing hen. Right. Never says that. He, there will be a few places where it, he's likened to that, but that is not at all the same as him identifying as father, uh, for example. So um, the, we need to make that distinction. We need to make clear that while God does not have a physical manly body, right? He doesn't have a male anatomy. Nonetheless, he is father. He is exclusively father. Jesus Christ in his incarnation is a man. And again, not incidentally a man. It's important that he is a man. He is the husband to his spiritual bride. So these things matter tremendously. We're not dealing with unisex God the Father. We're certainly not dealing with unisex Jesus. And, um, and we shouldn't think that, that we can. We can't blur these lines. We don't have an androgynous God. It is true that male and female alike are image bearers, but the image, us being made in God's image does not refer to, in Genesis 1 and elsewhere, anatomy. It refers to our, our spiritual likeness to God. It's a hermeneutic issue. Yes. I mean, looking at the Bible that way. Yeah. Uh, what are your thoughts on women who are career-minded and want to work outside the home in secular jobs or ministry, but also want to raise a family with the husband also working? I think the biblical picture uh, is that a man provides, you think of 1 Timothy 5.14 and other texts, you think of how Paul uh, counsels and teaches widows, for example, widows, uh, at the end of 1 Timothy are not encouraged to get a job and enter the workplace, but are encouraged to marry and find a husband and be a homemaker, essentially. You think of Titus 2, 3 to 5 that we talked about. That's clearly uh, a, a wife who is in view, an older woman, training a younger woman to be a worker at home. Um, so, so if you take 
the New Testament's teaching especially, you recognize, not that there's any distinction between old and new, but if, if we're normed by and under the authority of the New Testament and the New Covenant as we are, um, then you recognize that there's, there's, a, there's one voice that Scripture is speaking with, and when there are children in the home in particular, I think, uh, we do well to, to, to lead our church to create a culture of homemaking and motherhood, in my view. Um, I think that's what the Bible clearly teaches. So I think pastors shouldn't be shy about calling for women to reject secular values and ideals and instead, as God allows and as God leads, embrace being a homemaker, being a, a full-time mother, so to speak. There are gray areas as children age, as they get older, uh, as they leave the home, and I think we have some freedom in those, in those counts. I don't think that automatically means we flip to secular switch or something like this. Uh, um, I don't think we need to do that at all. Uh, I think it's a beautiful thing when, in fact, a woman who has raised her children is now free to invest in the young women of the church and to uh, serve the church in all sorts of ways. Um, and to, by the way, by the way, we always put it in the context of serving. And these, by the way, just enjoy life and uh, not have to, she doesn't have to work 55 stressful hours a week. She can make her home still and serve her husband and help her husband in all sorts of ways. Even in saying this in conservative evangelical settings, I recognize that there's disagreement on some of these matters, but um, I am resolved, there's an important word, I am resolved to uh, continue trying to hold out the goodness of these realities uh, from Scripture. Well, and you did an excellent job of painting the beauty of those, I think, in the, the last talk that we just had. Uh, this question says, I am in a situation where it comes, where it's coming time to lead a family. I'll need to do it differently than how I was brought up in order for it to be biblical. I know that reaching out to eldership will be critical, but are there any other resources or advice you can give so that I can avoid failing to lead a spouse and children biblically? The absolute most important thing that any of us can do in any setting, in any phase of lice, life, not lice, um, when you have lice, this is very important. Um, wow. The, the conference was going well until the speaker started talking about hair problems. Yeah. Blue, we already did blueberries, yeah. now we're doing lice. Um, the absolute most important thing any Christian can do at any phase of life is to stock your mind with the Word of God, is to feed on the Word of God, is to be a greedy feaster on the Scripture uh, with an omnivorous appetite. That is the most important thing any boy or girl, man or woman can do, to take in as much Bible as possible. Not to win a, a Bible quiz, uh, but to have to have your mind transformed by taking in Scripture. This is Romans 12, 1 and 2. There's no separate pattern for different phases of life or different people in this vocation or that. It is always the call for us as believers to be transformed by the renewing of our mind through the Scripture. That's it. So if you're prepping, this is a great question though, if you're prepping to, God willing, lead a wife and lead children spiritually, which is a very high calling. You don't need to be in ministry to have a high calling. To be a to be a head of a wife and a father is a very high calling, way beyond us, way beyond what we in our natural capacity are equipped for, uh, then the best thing you can do is train yourself spiritually 
to draw near to God, to pray regularly, to confess sin regularly, uh, to pursue self-control. So I would say as a, as a goal today, it sounds like this is a young man, I, don't, I can't tell, but okay. Yeah. As a major goal to in every area of your life, drawing on the infinite resources that are in the gospel of grace, pursue self-control. So sit down with your tablet or with a notepad and identify the ways in which you're not self-controlled and then get a plan for how you're going to grow in self-control. Too many Christians just assume that if they read the Bible and pray, it'll just click into place. You need to, be, you need to plan. You need to strategize against your sin. It's kill or be killed. What's your plan? Forget preparing. Once you're married, what is your plan for your family? What is the plan? We all know what it's like to be in a meeting or a setting, a corporate environment, an academic environment where there's no plan. It's absolutely a miserable experience. A few years ago, I went to a funeral. This is a bit morbid, but I'm going to use it. Uh, and, and literally, it was so sad. It was a non-Christian funeral, and we just sat in a room, and it was supposed to be kind of the memorial service, you know, time of remembrance or whatever. And one person just sort of tentatively said, does anybody have anything they'd like to say about person X? And we sat there for the next 20 minutes in the most awkward silence you've ever lived in. And it was awful. I'm still scarred by it, as you can tell. <laughs> to be in a setting with no plan and no leadership and no authority exercised in the right way, in a humble way, is a miserable experience. And we, we need, at all levels, Christians, we need men to step up and get a plan. What is your plan as a single man? How are you going to kill sin? Kill or be killed. What is your plan as a young husband and father? How are you going to lead this family to righteousness? What is your plan later in life when things have changed and you don't have all the same challenges you had earlier in your life? How in, how in your later years are you going to pursue the Lord? We need a plan at every stage of life. Um, all that's driven by a focus on self-control powered by divine grace. That was a lot. Just this week, I told Ms. Barbie, I said, at my funeral, there is not going to be an open mic. <laughs> we're, now we did lice, we did blueberry raking, now we're doing funeral counseling. I mean. We have to be preparing for death at all times. We do. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, similarly, I think, can you give some practical advice, tips, recommendations? We will homeschool and want to teach equip on LGBT, we'll just put plus beside that, versus biblical teaching. Uh, but would like at some point to assist uh, opportunities to our kids on interacting with LGBT to be in the world and not of the world. So practical advice, tips, recommendations on how to teach and how to interact, mm. to teach our kids to interact. Very, very helpful question. Um, Trans, there's a book about transgenderism. Right yeah, hey, you did it. You pointed. Um, <laughs> There are some Same. books. Uh, uh, I would say, honestly, I would say um, in, the, in the homeschool setting, um, open the Bible, plan, plan a lesson for your kids on these realities, uh, on, let's say, homosexuality or transgenderism, um, when they're of age, of course, right? 
when you sense that they're ready to handle this. And, uh, and that's an important word to say. I do think that there is an element of uh, fatherly and motherly protection, by the way, on these things. Not that we're pretending we're in a, a perfect, disnified world, but I do see a push among some of my peers to watch so many movies and get their kids so into the culture because that's just where they're gonna be. That it, it feels to me, at least, like there's not a lot of protection. And protection is a vital part of being a father and a mother. It's not that we pretend the world is unfallen, okay? We don't pretend that. We, we raise, like the lobster in the kettle, we raise the temperature over time such that our kids come to understand more and more the depth of depravity there is in this world. We have to do that. Don't mishear me. But we do it with great care. Too many parents in general are just throwing their kids into the culture. Too many evangelical parents just assume if they let their kids in, engage media and then they take them to church and say some stuff, it'll all work out. I think we have to protect our kids. But then as they do get older and as they can handle this, um, we train them in what the Bible teaches about these sins. We train them in what the culture is saying. You could um, take these notes that you're, some of you are taking down and you could say, here are five things that our culture teaches you about sex and sexual identity, again, as the kids are getting older, and, and, and you could walk through that, and then you could say, this is what the Bible teaches, and then as kids have questions, you don't swap them away and dismiss them, but you talk with them honestly, and then when you're at Target or you're at Walmart, and there is a, a man or a woman cross-dressing, and your kids are, are confused by that and, and interested by that, you, you walk them through what that is. You talk through that honestly, again, according to age. Um, an appropriate station in life. So a distinction about what the kingdom of God looks like and what the kingdom of man looks like in by protecting in that way so that that just doesn't become a wash, but to be able to see those differences. Yes. I think really what we're about, and I've already been sounding these notes without saying it this explicitly, but you're getting right there with those comments. What we actually are about is showing the absolute antithesis between Christianity and the world. The theologian who most articulates this is Cornelius Van Til of the Dutch Reformed tradition in America, famously associated with Westminster Seminary. I'm not Presbyterian. I would disagree with him on certain things. But he brought out, those of you who are theologically minded, those of you who are fellow geeks and actually like going to Starbucks and reading dense theology, okay? Van Til is a guy to read because he understands almost better than any theologian out there, I think, how different Christianity is from the world. I've been giving you antithesis in these sections. I've been trying to say your foremost duty as a Christian in your neighborhood, let's say, is not to show how your family is just like all the other families in the neighborhood. Of course, there are points of contact. Of course, you know, on Sunday it's guns, or Saturday it's guns up, right? I mean, uh, I had to work that in somewhere. Did I do that right? Did I do that right? One? I'm an, I'm this. What, this is Boy Scouts? You're double loaded there, double barrel. Yeah, you're double barrel. Guns, guns up. up, I'm really, I'm like, <laughs> I'm overdoing it over here. That's what happens when you try to contextualize and you're not really ready for it. I did, I did the wrong gun. I, I've been, I prepped that too, I thought. Say guns up at some point, because I love that motto, not just pandering here. I love guns up as a motto. You expressed that the first time we talked, I think. Yes, yeah. and on Twitter. Yeah. 
Where were we? Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> neighborhood. You're not trying to show. There are points of contact. You're cheering, you know, for for the team, of course, and these sorts of. And that's good. That's very good to show as a Christian. But it's also really important to show. It's fundamentally important to show that Christianity is distinct from the world, not in a hostile, mean way, the way it might be associated with in certain sectors of fundamentalism. That's not our goal. Our, our goal is to show in a gracious, loving, but absolutely convictional way, because of God, not me, because of God and his grace, we're different. And then we pray that that difference is attractive. A lot more to say, but yeah. I think that's what we're after in our, in our work here. Uh, this question, Genesis 2.24 mentions that the man is to leave his father and mother to be joined to his wife, but it doesn't mention the woman leaving her family. Mm. Does this imply the woman does not need to leave her family and the husband is to become part of hers? Does this say something about the wife's relationship with her family? Mm -mm. No. <laughs> no, um, because... Um, I do think the question is after something good because there should be close connections as much as we can have them between families. And in 21st century America, it's almost assumed that it's a good thing to leave your family. I think there's a kickback against that taking place, not just in the church now, but broader societally, where it's like, oh, oh no, we don't need to move. It's not, a, it's not a thing of success to move to Dallas or Kansas City. That's not, that's not what success looks like. Um, it's actually a beautiful thing to have grandkids near grandfather and grandmother and these sorts of things. God may not lead that way, but if you can have that, that's a beautiful thing. But uh, the next, th that verse, that, that passage, Genesis 2, 20, 24 and 25, says that the husband and wife become one flesh. So if there's any biblical concept that would sort of indicate that there's a new family formed out of, out of what has come before, it's that. One flesh union means this is a new family and means that a woman is not toggling between submitting to her father and her husband. Her husband is her head. That, that is easy to say theologically, but in practice, of course, where there's been a really godly close family, praise God, it's going to be a bit of a challenge, actually, probably, for her to, to transfer. Um, it's not that she demeans her father now, but it is that she sees her husband as her head. And that, that matter of headship is very important for this conversation. She needs to lock that in. He, he, this man is now her head. He's not perfect. He's not going to get it all right. Um, she's going to be tempted to think, well, you should do it like my dad did it. And maybe there's ways in which dad does instruct husband, okay? That's not a bad thing. I learned from my father-in-law, absolutely. But there needs to be a one flesh union created in this home. And that young person's husband needs to lead. Yeah. Yes. And, and to have that opportunity to lead. He needs to lead, and she needs to want him to lead. Right. She needs to not just welcome leadership if it bubbles up occasionally. She needs to look for opportunities to, to welcome and embrace She's his not leadership. not her brother. No. Yeah. This is just part of this house. Yeah. Uh, what are less obvious ways feminism has infected the church today ways we aren't aware of, things, uh, things that we practice. Now, I think we talked about maybe some of those things, but is there anything that like, comes to mind in how feminism has infected the church? Oh, that's a big question that I 
think I could answer well, or better, well, um, with some more time. Uh, well, well, I'll just say this. I think the general tenor of the church has been feminized. So that's not like a lot of little bitty ways. That's like, I think a lot of churches feel pretty feminine. I think a lot of young men seem to me to be fairly effeminate. They present themselves in an effeminate way. They have the hairstyle of a woman. They, they, they have an effeminate manner. You go into a church and it feels very touchy-feely in a lot of cases and the songs we sing are not, do not have stout, you know, strong conviction in them. Conviction is masculine, by the way, and so I agree with Piper that a church should have a masculine feel. It's not a negative statement against womanhood. It's that the church is supposed to be led by men. Right. It's supposed to be led by men who are elders, and so there should be a sense uh, in which it has a masculine feel, but a lot of churches and Christian settings have a kind of effeminate feel. We need, uh, it gets back to what we were talking about. We need to train our boys to see being a boy and being a man as a good thing. And we need to train our girls actually to want our, our boy, to, to want their, their brothers and the, the boys of the church to be masculine. That's not a bad thing. Now, the masculinity we're teaching is not a macho bravado masculinity. It's a strong manhood though. It's a strong manhood, but it's always, it's always cultured by, shaped by the fruits of the Spirit. Um, if we could get to that point, I, I think we would be a long ways down the road of addressing these little pockets of feminism that definitely, to the, to the question, good question, are in evangelical churches. Right. A, a starting point would be to train boys to be masculine, to look like men, to do masculine things, and here come the nuanced questions. Am I saying that every boy needs to be the second coming of Mahomes, you know, and uh, am I saying that boys can't be chefs, or am I saying that they can't be artsy, or they can't be computer programmers, or these sorts of things? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But I am saying that whether you like the arts, as I do, uh, whether you act in plays, as I did, whether you enjoy the world of computers, um, uh, as many do, that you nonetheless pursue the biblical priorities of godly manhood and that you also, it's not just the theological realities, that you also, to the, to the extent that you're able to embrace those markers of manhood that wise men do point you to. There's a sense today in even like reformed circles where sure I'm with you on biblical manhood as long as you're quoting like actual verse, but anything you say out of that is out of bounds. And the problem with such a viewpoint, which you get just a little bit on Twitter, if you post about these things, is that it doesn't fit with what, with this whole category the scripture calls wisdom. There, there is principle and theological teaching, right? So, so we've been that's mostly what I've been talking about. Men are called to be the head of a wife, right? In what form? A Christ-like head, dying self. That's a theological principle from the scripture. Then there's this whole category, though, of how, for example, a father who believes this with a godly wife acts on that. If I'm teaching my son to be a leader, like we've been talking about, how? How do I teach him to be a leader? What do I say to him to train? What does he do to train to be a leader? 
I'm going to have to fill in the gaps there, right? Right. If I want him to, I'm sorry, I'm going on here, but if I want him to be a protector, do I just say, son, be a protector, pat, pat on the head, and, and go and God bless. I have to train him to be a protector. He doesn't have to learn to shoot a gun, for example. He doesn't have to have a, a knife in his belt or something like this. I might well do those things to try to train him, though. He doesn't have to wrestle me to the ground by age 14. I don't know, but I might well wrestle with him to try to train him in that. My point is, if you're going to take these principles, everybody has to make them practical right. at some level, which means you have to use wisdom, which means you can't just say the biblical teaching. Right. You have to flesh it out. Oh, perfect. We almost made it through the whole thing, almost. Uh, we're going to wrap up with that. We're back at 1045, right? So I don't know how long of a break that is, but at 1045, be back in here for our final session. Thank you. Thank you.